my wife and I got married, I think we were both aware that there would be conflict in marriage. We understood that we were sinners, and anytime you put two sinners together, you're gonna have conflict. But for us, it started pretty early. We were fine the first week, but on the last night of our honeymoon, I was packing the luggage because we were gonna fly out early that next morning. And all of a sudden, I hear the precious voice of my sweet new bride say, um, that's not how you do it. Now, to that point in my life, I'd packed a lot of suitcases and I'd never heard any complaints. So to give her the benefit of the doubt, I lied to her and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What'd you say? And she said, you're packing the clothes incorrectly. Well, I know this will shock you, but we had a pretty intense argument that evening. But eventually things settled down and we came to a mutual agreement and I've never packed a piece of luggage since. <laughs> but I am happily married after 26 years, amen? Now, you don't even have to be married to look back on a previous conflict that you've had with another person to see that you probably have grown since that conflict. You've matured. You probably understand yourself better. You, you maybe even understand the other person better. You have grown through the conflict. In a similar way, the passage that we're gonna look at this morning is about growing through conflict. As we've seen the past two Sundays, the Apostle Paul is in a conflict with the church at Corinth. It's a difficult one. And this church was a source of joy and heartache to the Apostle Paul. And friends, that's true of all close relationships in our life. I often say that the people that I love the most bear my last name and they frustrate me the most. That's just life as a sinner, living with other sinners in a fallen world. But even so, the beautiful thing is, is that conflict is something that God uses to grow us spiritually. So sometime between Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and this letter, 2 Corinthians, he decided that a previously planned visit that he was gonna make to them would not take place. He wasn't gonna be able to come in person as he thought he would simply because there was a change of plans. And in the short term, that kind of made the conflict worse because the folks at Corinth ended up attacking Paul's character and questioning his integrity about this change. So one of the reasons he writes 2 Corinthians is to resolve their conflict with him. And in our passage today, Paul deals with three elements of that conflict, the one between him and the Corinthian church. So let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. And we are looking at this morning, 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter one, verse 15. Word of God says this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Chapter two. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, I will admit to you, this is a bit of a complicated passage, but I think one of the things that's clear in what we just read is that Paul understands that spiritual growth can take place even in the midst of a difficult conflict. And he, and he refers to three different factors that come in play in that. First of all is his confidence. Number one on your outline is his confidence. Paul demonstrates an amazing confidence here, and that first shows up in his bent to bless. Letter A on your outline would be a bent to bless. When I say Paul has a bent to bless, that just means he has a predisposition to be a blessing to other people. He's actually bent that way, and that, that actually comes about in the life of every single believer. Because when God saves us, he changes the trajectory of our lives. We turn from our sin in repentance 180 degrees and turn to Christ to now follow him. That's what it means to be saved. And our desires change as a result of being saved, including our desire to serve other people. That's why Paul says in verse 15, look at it with me in your Bibles. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He just wanted to serve them and it's important that we get this right. Paul uses the common Greek word for grace here, which is charis, which simply means gift. And that certainly applies to the saving grace that God gives the elect through Christ, but it can also just mean a simple blessing. But what it does not mean is it does not mean another salvation experience. Paul's not talking about that. Paul's not referring to what many in the charismatic world today would call a second blessing, which is unbiblical, by the way. And if you have another translation besides the ESV, verse 15 may read, so that you might twice receive a blessing. Or it might say, so that you might benefit twice. Paul's simply talking about his visit being a second blessing to them, a second gift. See, Paul had already made a trip to Corinth fairly recently, and the tone of that previous trip was appropriately disturbing, and I'll tell you why. It was disturbing because there was blatant sin taking place in the church in Corinth, and Paul was right to rebuke them at that time. So now Paul's plan was to come to visit them again and this time bless them, caress, be a grace gift to them. 
He was hopeful that by now that they had handled a particular difficult, sinful church discipline matter that we'll talk about more next Sunday. And he was bent to be a blessing to them. And he mentions that not only in verse 15, but also in verse 16. Look at verse 16 in your Bible because he says he's looking forward to them, seeing them multiple times. But then he states in the end of verse 16, I wanted to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now this particular correspondence takes place toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And on that missionary journey, Paul visited the existing churches that he had previously planted to strengthen and encourage them. And he was visiting those churches and as he was, he was collecting an offering to take back to Judea, to the church in Jerusalem. So why was he collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem? Well, they were in bad shape at this time. The church there was being persecuted severely. The Christians in Jerusalem were being economically shunned, so much so that for some of them, they were literally being starved. So Paul took that opportunity to step in, be used of God, and to bless the church in Jerusalem. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a bent towards blessing other people? Or are you just all about you? Every single one of us heard the announcement earlier in the service about the opportunity to serve in Vacation Bible School. What a privilege. And if you're a member or an associate member, I would encourage you, think about what went through your mind during that announcement. And that might give you a good indication as to how bent to bless you are. Do you have a predisposition to serve other people? See, those who have been transformed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we have a predisposition to be a blessing to other people, to be a grace gift. Paul's confidence here not only showed up in his bent to bless, but it also showed up in his clear conscience. Letter B on your outline would be clear conscience. And that's in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me in your Bibles. Paul asked a question about his previous plans. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? See, there was some fallout when Paul had to cancel his trip to see them. Not only were they upset, but they accused him of vacillating on this decision. Now, the Greek word that is translated into vacillating means lighthearted or levity. So think about that. Without all the facts, the believers in Corinth concluded that Paul just didn't care. He was lighthearted about his decision to cancel. Now, I know that there's nobody in here that's ever done that. None of us have ever ascribed incorrect motives to another person without all the facts, right? Well, Paul said he can't come. Was he think that's no big deal? He doesn't care for us anymore? We must not be able to trust him. That was the accusation. But Paul knew it wasn't true and he had a clear conscience about that. Brothers and sisters, we must trust in God and not jump to conclusions, particularly when we don't have all the facts. We must guard against that. God's people are to be different from the world in thousands of ways, but that's one of them. But then Paul goes on to ask a second question in verse 17. Look at it with me. He says, do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, 
at the same time? See, in both of these questions here, Paul seems to be mimicking his accusers who are questioning his reliability. And he does that by asking two rhetorical questions, both of which the answer is absolutely no. Paul is asking, was I vacillating on my decision not to visit you and you think, I think that's no big deal? Answer, absolutely no. And did I decide according to the flesh where I said, yes, I will come, but I really meant no, I won't come? Answer, no. His conscience was clear about that. And there's a reason that his conscience was clear about that. Because in 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of that previous letter to this same church, Paul actually sets up his return visits to that church. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verses five through seven, it says this. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter there so that you may help me go on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I want everybody to say that last phrase with me. If the Lord permits. That's so crucial, friends. And you know, James 4.15 makes the exact same point. James says we ought not just to say when we're making plans that we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that, but he says instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul had a clear conscience toward this group of people that he loved, but he could not go see them at this time. And his confidence comes from knowing that there is someone who rightfully is sovereign over his plans, and that's the Lord. Are you aware that God is sovereign over your plans? so timely for you and I to grasp this and all of our modern sensibilities with our, our plans and our schedules and our calendars on our phones that beep at us. It's not an evil thing to make plans. But all of our plans must be qualified by if the Lord permits. And you know the real litmus test for this is how you and I respond when our plans get changed. Notice I didn't say when we change our plans because that's not the test. The test is when our plans get changed. I failed miserably at this just last week. I was coming home from a long day at work and quite honestly, 2023 has already been a long year for me. And as I was driving home, I had plans in my head already set in stone about what I was gonna do that evening. When I got home, I was gonna change into something comfortable, sit in my favorite chair, watch TV, and fall asleep. That's all I wanted to do. But the problem was, when I went into our bedroom, there was a snake on the floor. Yeah, I know. We've lived there 17 years, and there's never been a snake inside our house, but the night I have big plans, there is. Do you know how hard it is to catch a snake? I mean both physically and psychologically hard. On the first attempt, it went under my dresser. In the second attempt, it went into my closet. And like you, I've got a lot of junk in the bottom of my closet. So two hours later, the closet's cleaned out, but there's no snake there. And it took me two more hours to put all my stuff back. 
And I had to ask forgiveness from my wife and my youngest son for completely losing my temper. Why did I respond in sin like that? Because my plans got changed and I didn't like it. Friends, we're to hold our plans loosely and we are to qualify our plans with the principle if the Lord permits. Because sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. He's sovereign like that. And with a clear conscience, Paul understood that there is a marvelous freedom in embracing the phrase, if the Lord permits. Paul's confidence showed up in his bent to bless. It also showed up in his clear conscience. And thirdly, it showed up in his firm foundation. Letter C on your outline is firm foundation. Beginning in verse 18, Paul declares something really important about this spat that he's having with the church in Corinth. Look at it with me in your Bibles. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul uses the phrase, our word to you. He's talking about his confidence. He's, he's referring to his preaching to them. And his preaching to them is not lighthearted. It's not levity. It's serious business because it's the truth of the gospel. Truth matters. You ever been in a situation where you said yes but you knew the truth was no, or vice versa. That's a sin. It's bearing false witness. It's lying. It breaks one of the Ten Commandments. See, the closer you and I stay to God's Word, the more reliable we are going to be personally to other people. Because God is faithful, and He's called us to be faithful as well. And friend, if you're relatively new to McGregor, this is why we preach the way we do. We typically study a, a book of the Bible and go verse by verse. It's called expositional preaching, and the goal is simply to expose what the text already says. We believe God's word is reliable here. So the point of the sermon should be the point of the passage, right? Because you don't need my opinion on a given topic this morning. What we need is we need God's word. So in our gathering each Lord's Day, it's God's people feasting on God's word. That's our firm foundation. Because again, God's word is reliable. And not only is God's word reliable, but God's son is reliable as well. Look at verse 19 in your Bibles. Paul says, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul's pointing the Corinthians to Jesus, plain and simple, because Jesus is the reliable one. Jesus' words can be trusted. And it's Jesus who told his disciples, if you remember in Matthew 5, 37, he said, don't take an oath, but instead let what you say simply be yes or no. That should be the case for every person who claims the name of Christ that our yes should reliably mean yes when we say it, and our no should reliably mean no when we say it. Because we're anchored to a firm foundation of truth, and that foundation is Christ. Of whom Paul says in verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's just a beautiful verse. Essentially, Paul says here in verse 20 that his ministry to the Corinthian church is an automatic yes 
because God has already said yes to the Corinthian church in salvation. Look, this side of heaven, you and I are gonna have conflict with people. It's just a reality. But here, Paul is reminding them and us today that God has already solved the biggest conflict that anyone could ever face, and that is our sinful rebellion against a holy God. That's your biggest problem today. That's my biggest problem today. See, we are sinners, and my sin and your sin leads to death. We're born at war with God, rebels who break his law time and time again. And because of that conflict, we stand rightly condemned before a holy and perfect God. And we justly deserve his judgment in hell for all of eternity. Mankind's actually had this conflict going all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, God began making promises that he would send a savior for sinners like you and me. And 2,000 years ago, God said yes to all those promises in his son, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're outside of Christ this morning, know this. He is the answer to the largest conflict you've got going on in your life right now. And you may not even know you've got it, but assuredly, you do. And the remedy for that conflict has already been provided by Jesus Christ. And that's good news today. That in his mercy and grace, God has promised a way of escape from his wrath against our sin. And that way is a person. It's God's son. And again, if you're outside of Christ, it would be our prayer today that you turn from your sin and by faith, trust in Christ to save you. The first element in this conflict with the Corinthians was Paul's confidence. And we see the second element, number two on your outline, is their commonality. The Corinthians had forgotten their commonality with Paul. And so he reminds them of two different things. One is how God worked. Letter A on your outline, how God worked. One of the things I think is so encouraging whenever I read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians is is just how faithful God is to work in and through messed up people. This was a messed up church. And still today, conflicts within the church are difficult to navigate. And we're not exempt from that here at McGregor. That's why I praise God for our elder body here. That there's not just one guy trying to figure everything out, but it's a plurality of godly men attempting to shepherd this church family together. That's no small thing. And here, Paul is trying to prevent the snowball from rolling all the way down the hill and making this conflict bigger. And his tactic is to remind the Corinthians of how God has worked among them. He does that in four specific ways. Look at verse 21. What does he say of how God has worked? And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Do you know who caused your salvation? I'll give you a hint, it wasn't you. It's God. He establishes us in Christ. And he establishes us not by ourselves, but with other people. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. 
We're, we're born again, not as an abandoned orphan, but we're born again into a family. That's the local church. That's how God works. He establishes us. Keep reading verse 21. And he has anointed us. Do you realize all Christians are anointed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation? Now in the Old Testament, people were anointed who were typically prophets, priests, and kings. And they were anointed by oil to sort of set them apart to serve in the role that God had for them. Well, guess what? If God has saved you, the same thing is true for you. You and I are set apart and equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve in the role God has for us. He has established us. He has anointed us. Now read verse 22. And put his seal on us. That phrase just reminds us that the anointing of the Holy Spirit that he just mentioned is permanent. It's not some transient, mystical thing that we're always kind of searching for like the false prosperity preachers teach. Where's the anointing today? Where's it gonna fall? Well, where's it gonna fall? No, we have it. God has put a seal on us authenticating that we permanently belong to him. He's established us. He's anointed us. He's put a seal on us. Finally, in verse 22, look at it with me. He's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Did you notice the implicit mention of the Trinity in those two verses? God, Christ, spirit. Given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word for guarantee in the original language means earnest, as in earnest money or a down payment. God gives the indwelling Holy Spirit to a sinner the moment of their salvation as a down payment, as a first installment, if you will, that guarantees our final inheritance in the kingdom to come one day. It's amazing. And in light of all of that, all that God has done in us, if you're in conflict with another person in this church, remember how God has worked in us. That's his point. If he's done all of this, then he can reconcile you to that other person that you're in conflict with. That's because he's God. And because he's working with two people who he's established, he's anointed, he's, he's put his seal on and given his spirit to. Brothers and sisters, you and I can get through any conflict together given how God has worked in us. In addition to reminding them of how God has worked, Paul also reminds them in a very subtle way how they failed. Letter B on your outline is how they failed. Look at verse 23 in your Bibles. Paul says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. See, they falsely assumed they knew Paul's motives about why he wasn't coming to visit them. They thought he didn't care. They thought his concern about them wasn't serious. Ironically, they had forgotten Paul's instruction from 1 Corinthians 13, 7, where Paul said to the exact same group of people, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. These believers in Corinth were about to press the eject button on Paul's leadership because they forsook 1 Corinthians 13, 7. 
See, they assumed that they knew his motive as to why he wasn't coming. And friends, we cannot know another person's motive. Sometimes we can't even figure out our own motive as to why we do what we do, right? Corinthians were wrong because in reality, Paul just wanted to spare them. Instead of coming to rebuke them again, he wanted to give them more time to repent and thus spare them from another difficult visit by him. Paul has shared with the Corinthians and us today his confidence, their commonality. And finally, in the first few verses of chapter two, he shares his compassion. The last element in this conflict, number three, his compassion. And that compassion actually came about due to a providential change. Letter A on your outline is a providential change. And I mentioned this before. Paul decided not to visit them. And in verse one, he just reiterates that. Look at it with me. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Paul just had a change of plans and it was not sin for him to do that. It was actually wise. And ultimately that change of plan was providentially orchestrated by the God of the universe. And the Corinthians can get mad at Paul all they want to. But in the end, God is the one who orchestrates all of this. And that's true for us today as well. Proverbs 19, 21 says, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. I'll say it again, having a plan is not a bad idea. But we are to hold our plans loosely. And we must fight against the temptation of making our plans an idol in our life. Because in the end, it's only the counsel of the Lord that stands, not necessarily our plans. God is sovereign over all the details of your life. And when plans get changed, we are to submit to his providential wisdom. It's not just about rolling with the punches, but it's knowing that we have a good and wise heavenly father who loves us and uses the circumstances of our life in order to sanctify us and refine us, even as painful as that might be at times. Paul expresses that kind of pain in verse two and three. He says in verse two, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Paul didn't want to cause them pain by showing up and having another disturbing visit with them. So he made a decision not to go and guess what? God orchestrated this conflict to soften Paul's heart toward the Corinthians. That's spiritual growth, friends. Paul's actually growing in his compassion for these brothers and sisters, even though he's in conflict with them. That's crazy. Only God can do that. God's using a difficult relationship to cause Paul to trust in Christ all the more. And by the way, that's what every trial in the life of a Christian has the potential to do, to cause us to trust in Christ all the more. Jerry Bridges in his classic book, Trusting God, says this, God, in his infinite wisdom, knows exactly what adversity we need to grow more and more into the likeness of his son. He not only knows what we need, but when we need it and how best to bring it to pass 
in our lives. Brothers and sisters, God uses our trials. He uses our sin. And he uses the moments when other people sin against us. He uses all of that for his wise purposes in our life so that we might grow stronger in our faith. This was a providential change. But lastly, it was also a personal comparison. Last on your outline is a personal comparison. Paul uses himself as a point of comparison here. He's, he's an example to the Corinthian church of, of someone who has the right attitude towards another believer who's in sin. And what is the right attitude that we are to have towards those who are in sin? He tells us in verse four, look at it with me. For I wrote to you out of much affliction. Listen for the attitude and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love I have for you. That's the right attitude we're to have towards those who are in sin. I'll speak more about verse four on the Beyond the Notes podcast this week, but this is basically tough love. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul had a deep and abiding agape kind of love for the members of that church in Corinth, so much so that he was willing to take the arrows that they were shooting at it, the arrows of criticism, and still be a personal example a point of comparison of a person who loves other people even when those other people are sinning against him. Wow. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Paul certainly was right to see this conflict with him as an opportunity for spiritual growth. And he trusted God through the whole thing. 